You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 81. Today, I talk with Dr. Vivian Asamwa. We talked about bias, triggers, and owning a surgery center. It's a great episode. And we're only a couple weeks away from the release of Become the Boss MD book. Head to bosssurgery.com to get your sneak peek of the introduction and the first chapter. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have this great guest. I'm so excited to talk to her. We have just been really having a great time beforehand strategizing what we want to talk about. She has so much to offer. This is Dr. Vivian Asamwa. She is a gastroenterologist. She has her own surgery center. She has a solo GI private practice and has learned so many lessons here too. And we were strategizing on what we wanted to talk about. And I love the idea of the different roles we play, especially as a woman in a power position, um, how we have to shift our strategies for the different roles that we play. So this is going to be great. Uh, so Dr. Asamwa, tell me a little bit more about yourself. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Dr. Bertrice, for having me on your show. I'm really looking forward to sharing and learning with your audience. I am, my name is Vivian Asamwa. I'm uh, originally from Ghana. I live in Houston, uh, actually in West Houston, Katy. I uh, moved to U the United States uh, probably about 20 years ago now, uh, trained in Geneva, Switzerland for medical school, and then came here to the United States for residency and fellowship, and now have a private practice in Katy, Texas. I love it. And what made you go into private practice? Because that may not be like the most obvious choice these days, but what was it about private practice that appealed to you? I think the top three things for me were uh, independence, the possibility of growth, and uh, I'm not going to lie, control. <laughs> mm -hmm. Amen, sister. <laughs> control. <laughs> Absolutely. And so now I know that you had the private practice. At what point did you start investing into a surgery center? How did that go about? Well, um, that's a great question, Amy. You'll probably hear my son. He's finishing up. We keep it real here. Yes. So um, as a gastroenterologist, you know, one of our main ancillary sources is investing in a surgery center, partnering with a team where we perform our procedures and can generate some shared revenue, right? And um, I had, you know, right after fellowship, I in, joined a hospital employee position for two or three years and quickly realized that that was not going to be for me as there was no room for growth. When you are in an employed physician position, um, you most of the time you can't invest in a surgery center. You are committed to doing a lot of your cases right there in a hospital. Few of them will allow you to invest, but generally not most of them. And even if you can invest, you are invested in a, 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 a surgery center that is owned as by a hospital. So a hospital has majority share of about 51%. And then the physicians have 49%. So they still control um, the conversation, right? And um, 
I had worked at, at several surgery centers just performing procedures and um, looked at their contracts for buying in, exiting strategies, and looked at the board, right? And I quickly noticed that I was going to be a tiny mouse in a room full of giants. A lot of men, surgery is heavily male-dominated, Dr. Vertries, heavily male-dominated, and my voice was most likely not going to be heard. And I wanted my voice to be heard in every room, right? Whether it was in my own practice, whether it was in a surgery center, whether it was an investment deal, I wanted my voice to be heard. And so when I decided to build, like stop renting for my practice and build my own location, we were, we were, um, we got lucky in some ways and were able to partner with other providers who were interested in joining us and building a surgery center. And I said, wow, I would be sitting in the boardroom here. This would be ours. And we know we may not get amazing contracts, but we'll make them good enough, make the place run efficiently. And I said, now this I can do. And so that was truly the first time I wholeheartedly invested in a surgery center because I felt like I could sit at the table. And why was it important for you to sit at the table? You know, it's it's quite a big investment, right? And as a as a private practice physician, you've you've grown your practice, you you have your patient base, and you care deeply about your patients and where they get their procedures. Like I have decided not to go to certain hospitals because I didn't want to take my patients there. I didn't like the care they received in the emergency room. I didn't like the care and even the billing structures and things like this. So taking them to a surgery center was kind of the same way. I was taking them along with me and wanted to take them to a facility that was going to deliver excellent care, be able to answer their questions um, in terms of billing, that it was a fair, you know, fair um, priced and and all of those things came in, in into play. So it was kind of like I was bringing my kids along and I wanted to take them to a good place. And so it wasn't that was important for me, making sure my patients were going to the right kind of facility. And the second reason I wanted my voice to be heard is that I've invested so much of my time, my energy and effort that to relinquish that control because I'm at a different facility that I have, I bring my cases to, that I participate in, that I train staff and continue to grow with, I thought it was very important that my voice was still recognized and heard. I didn't want to be that owner who just had a 0.1% share and really no one cared about what you said. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't yeah. just about the money. It was about more than that. Well, I completely agree. And I feel the same way too. You know, I started um, a private practice that was initially solo private uh, practice. And my goal was I, I wanted to have the the career that I wanted. You know, I wanted to have the ability to, you know, determine the patient's experience. I wanted to control my own experience. I wanted to go to a place that I enjoyed, surrounded by people that, you know, supported me and, you know, had the shared vision and when the patient came through the door to all the experience that they had is I knew 
what they were going to get. You know, I had this vision of the level of quality and the level of service and level of experience I wanted that patient to have. And I also wanted to have that experience myself. You know, I wanted to go and feel appreciated and to challenge my leadership skills and to, you know, do things that people don't necessarily do. Um, And there was a lot of of purpose in that. Um, And I really, you know, I'm the same. It wasn't really about the money. It was about, you know, having the career that I always wanted. And I was not getting that in the employed model that I was in. Absolutely. And and I think, Amy, you just brought that out um, and highlighted it for me. Shared vision, having the experience, not just for your patients, but for yourself. And that's how I feel when I walk into my, the surgery center. You know, I we know all the staff by name. I enjoy working with them. Um, we are celebrating birthdays. We're celebrating wins. It's just a totally different experience than walking into a different kind of center, you know, and um, I, I, I love it. I love it. And I know one of the challenges that we were talking about is the role that we play in um, in interactions, which is different depending on who you interact with. And I know, you know, especially as a, as a female leader, you know, you and I both know that there's inherent bias um, in all of, of the things that we deal with. And our strategy has to change based on this. You know, no one on, on I don't know if anyone could really argue that there's gender bias in the world and, you know, especially gender bias for females, but then women of color as well. Like the level of biases that are faced are a lot, mm-hmm. but all that means. And when you are in a leadership position, you come up with a different strategy. So let's talk about some different strategies and the different roles that we play. Absolutely. I, I you know, we didn't even talk about, we talked about gender bias. We didn't even talk about race bias. Right. I, you know, that, that, that the gender bias is, First and foremost, it really comes before even Reese and other cultural uh, sensitivities. But um, I kind of thought I was equipped, Amy, because I have uh, four brothers and I'm the only girl. So I was like, I got this, you know, even throughout, you know, from growing up, I've always kind of had to own my voice, you know, defend myself, you know, Um, especially when my voice wasn't always the loudest or the deepest in the room. Um, and, and so in, you know, growing up in the family, I had to do that. And then going to medical school in, and being probably the only black African female in a class of starting off 500, um, that was incredible. And then coming to the United States, starting private practice, I, and being alone in private practice, you know, that carries its own, um, struggles, but then starting this surgery center just took things to a completely different level. And the, for the first time, and I'm glad it did, it, it, I, it, it opened my eyes to coaching and the importance of leadership coaching. And I think that is what has actually helped me make it through or actually keep seeing the light and getting even more excited about owning this role, right? I I had to really understand that it's, you know, it's totally different when you've got brothers who love you and, you know, they're going to fight for you anyway. But here you're working with a team of people who've come from all different walks of life, have worked with completely different people. Some of them have never even had a female boss or leader. I like to use the word leader more than boss. And there's a lot of... um, a, a lot of assumptions, a lot of preconceived ideas, a lot of a lot of biases as well. 
And we had to somehow, I had to understand where they were coming from and allow them the time to understand this dynamic, to kind of embrace the dynamic that this is a slightly different situation. Mm-hmm. This is not my typical male GI surgeon or GI doc boss. This is different. Yes. And so from both ends, that has to be acknowledged. And, and from there, we have to strategize and decide, well, how do we want to work together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's where I think coaching kind of has me a lot. It's amazing to know that there's bias and we feel like all bias is the same, but it's not. The bias that we have of you know being the only female with three brothers in a, an environment where they love you and they trust you is so much different than the gender bias you have with four separate people who, who do not necessarily know and trust you that the strategies have to change. The bias is always going to be there, but it comes with different layers with different things that we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. hundred percent. So in terms of the team, there is there, there, as you say, there are different layers of bias, right? Mm -hmm. There is the general team bias. And then the, then, then you lead up to your management and leadership, right? And that, that's a different interaction. There's some bias there as well. That's, that's a little bit different because now the questions and conversations are more difficult and more challenging, and they have to be answered very objectively without too much emotion, really with an objective focus, with a strategy that uh, that you know ends up being we are doing this and we are making this decision for the greater good of the entire company and the mm-hmm. vision of this surgery center. Not just because this doctor wants to eat snickle, you know, snicker bars on one day and this doctor wants to do this on another day, and it it has to be for the vision of the entire practice. And when you have to make of the entire surgery center, when you have to make decisions like that people quickly become emotional. And that's where you see the biases coming out when you're having to make decisions that they may not necessarily want to hear, but have to accept. It's always like, well, I think she's saying this because she's just having a really bad day. She's just really being very hormonal today. And she's really edgy. (laughs) Yes. And I think, you know, starting off from the top as the role of leader, Um, when you're dealing with these high stakes emotions, I think that you nailed it. I mean, that's when the biases, you know, come out because when it's an emotional and it feels like a fight, people go to whatever strategy they think is going to win. And goodness knows, since bias is that weapon that's on the table all the time, they just grab that one. You know, it's It's very easy to grab at that one. It's very easy. And it's very easy to to disseminate that same bias around to see see why this is happening it's because she right and and then you you have to scale back and take it back to what's our overall vision why are why are we choosing this strategy we have this vision for the better good of the surgery center of the team and these decisions, there's an objective, there's a rationale there's objective decisions and of course understanding you know you have to I feel like as a female leader, you have to explain yourself a little bit more, perhaps a lot more. Mm-hmm. Whereas a guy can say, we are doing this and this is how it's going to be. 
I find myself often saying, we are doing this because, because, because. Everyone on the same page, I'm having to give a lot more rationale for them to get that buy-in, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas guys will be like, we're doing this. Okay, good. Everyone meeting over. All good, you know, but you will be questioned a lot more. You will be challenged a lot more. Yes, (laughs) absolutely true. Like I said, we keep it real here. (laughs) I know. My son is making popcorn. Yes. Well, at least it didn't jump on my back. It usually results in some hostilities. Uh, Well, it's absolutely true. Like when we are in a leadership position and bias is readily available and it causes people to be emotionally charged. And when people are emotionally charged, then that leads us to winning. Now, obviously this ends up being an artificial win and no one actually wins, but in the moment, it's what we grab. It's what's easy. And it's what's effective because setting someone off kilter by setting them in emotional defensive mode is a winning strategy, but no one wins. No one wins. So everyone loses actually in that situation. Everyone loses. And it's, rec- I mean, I didn't even realize until I you know, became a coach and got coaching myself that how easy it is to drop into the emotional aspect of it too, because we are driven by our emotions and we have to pick the ones that is going to lead to the greater good. And most of the time that is getting to the emotion that leads more to neutrality and powerfulness and not the defensiveness and the frustration and things like that, which when someone pulls out the bias card, you know, when we see it, because we've, we've dealt with it our entire life, you know, we bring all of those previous interactions with us. Absolutely. And then it comes to, you know, if, if we put that as the issue, then we miss the greater good issue. And so everybody loses when we do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. You know, in, in this kind of role, and I'm sure you see it through your co- coaching experience as well as you are coaching yourself and coaching others, um, the triggers are there, mm-hmm. right? And some of these triggers I feel are n- not, you know, we talk about, you know, childhood traumas and triggers there, but I, you know, th- there, there is, there is also this, there's like a, 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 a universal gender trigger, right? There's this universal gender there trigger. Is. There is this ancestral trigger, like from your ancestors way behind. It's almost engraved and imprinted in you. And it takes a lot of self-work, self-care, coaching to be able to remove yourself or even identify when you are being triggered and stop. Yes. Just take a minute to stop and breathe and decide whether you want to continue the conversation at that time or whether it's best to just pull yourself out and then schedule that conversation under a different setting at a different time where you have time to think through things. And that's one of the biggest things I've learned, especially when you're in a boardroom having a conversation. That is not the time you want to let those triggers out or, or be triggered by, you know, you, that is just not the right time. And so identifying that within yourself, taking a minute to identify that so you know what what the what the most neutral response is going to be so sometimes i catch myself how saying well how do i express this well for both parts for both parties to understand not just for me to understand how do i express this for both parties to understand and and that usually leads to neutrality where the other person usually also now realizes that they probably need to take a minute to stop 
right? And just having that pause makes a huge difference. And this is something that I think happens quite a lot um, with our, our leadership. So our business admin and our director of nursing uh, where we are, we've come to a, a T-junction in terms of a, an important and difficult decision. And, and very often we don't make the decision right there and then, because as a female boss, it, it's never, it's it's harder to just give them the decision and let them execute. There is a lot more conversation. Again, as I said, there is a lot more mm-hmm. because, because, because. So you really have to be able to understand and justify and and explain. But I will say once they're bought in, they're all in. And here are some of the benefits of being a female leader is that when you have a team that fully embraces you, they actually realize how much work you've had to put in to win them over. And they appreciate that. You've gone the extra mile for me. I didn't make it tough for you, but I realize you've gone the extra mile. This was much easier. This is much easier now than I when I worked for this male physician for 20 years who just handed me stuff to do, right? Yeah. I now feel vested. I feel part of this. I understand, which is why I think women just need to take over the world. <laughs> I mean, obviously. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> well, I think the most, I mean, I think that you had so many great points. And the things that I see in what you were describing is that, you know, yes, it does take a lot more convincing. And we know that we come from um, a, you know, a triggered place. And we know that we come from, you know, having to over defend and over explain and things like that. And if we stop there, which, you know, it's so easy to stop there. It's so easy to stop there and say it's not fair. But mm-hmm. I, mean, I like winning. So then I stop and say, like, you know, of course, it's not fair. But you keeping the end in mind, the end goal is that I will win them over. They will see this effort that, you know, if I keep my eye focused on the best interest of the, the conversation here, and I don't let the, you know, they call it like the thought covering up the circumstance. You know, if I let this trigger cover up the circumstance of what I want to accomplish, then I won't accomplish it. And so it's having that greater vision of saying, yes, this is not fair. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no question there's bias. There's no question it's not fair, but I trust that they're going to see it in the end. Yes. That if I feel passionately about it is that, you know, I do this from a place of true and genuine what I want and I want them to see and I be that person ahead of time knowing that they'll see it. Um, and that's I like I, that what you're yeah. describing. Absolutely. And I like that term that you, when you mentioned that phrase, I'll be that person ahead of time. <laughs> Walking into every conversation, even some conversations that you think will be smooth and easy, mm-hmm. um, end up being actually some of the most challenging ones because you're dealing with someone who else who has their triggers and who didn't even foresee this conversation. But what I've also learned through coaching is whenever you walk into the conversation, you have to determine what your outcome, what you hope you want your outcome to be. Right irrespective of whatever else in there is feeling, is thinking, is judging, or is being biased about. You have to determine that at the end of the conversation, when I sit up and grab my little Prada bag, (laughs) good for you. I want this. I don't have a Prada bag, by the way, but I want this to be the message 
that is, this is the, 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 I want there to be clarity in my message. This is what I want them to pick from the message. And this is the goal that I want to set. Right. And if you are able to achieve that, not necessarily a win, it is a win for you. They don't necessarily know it's a win, but if you're able to achieve that, that was a successful meeting. And we were just talking about, <clears throat> you know, we talked about the team and some of the challenges and, and, and that seems to be a lot better at this point. There are still some times where our silent partners who are male partners, we do send them to do some, I do send them to do some of the legwork that I feel, hey, this is a this is something we just need to get this done. We just need this part done. And I will send them in and say, hey, please, this is what we want to achieve at the end of this conversation. And you know, they're in and out. They're like, I got this. Yeah, I went in there. I told them this is it and we're done. I'm like, wow, I would have been in there for like half an hour. Yes. But um, just talking about knowing the outcomes of the conversation and kind of going along that journey, we are now in contract negotiations uh, with some of our uh, our our, uh, our insurance companies, and I'm I'm having to lead some of these conversations sometimes with a silent uh, partner along, but I'm having to justify why we need an increase because we are an excellent service, because we're HHC accredited, because uh, we have very low complication rates, because we offer the best um, rates in the market compared to you know, all the surgery centers around us. And I can deliver all that. And I, and I don't want them to come back and say, well, what do you want? I wanna make sure that my ask is clear Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, this is the outcome. And at the end of this meeting, maybe I ask for 200% more, but I will be okay if they offer me 150. I just want that to be clear when I walk out of the meeting. And if, and I, if I achieve that, then that's a win. And I think that that's a key that a lot of people miss is that you, you are clear about what you want. And I think when we go into a meeting and we're clear what we want, um, then we're not relying on them to tell us what's fair. You know, we already have determined what's fair. We're certain we should get it. We have all the uh, facts behind that, that, that okay. say that this is how this is going to be. And our confidence is contagious. Mm -hmm. You know, our certainty is contagious. Mm -hmm. If we go in there saying, I don't know, what are you going to give me? Uh, you know, we're automatically putting ourselves in a weaker position. And for no question that, you know, we know as women, we have to be more prepared and more strategies and more mm -hmm. things. And, you know, we can have a lot of drama about that, or we can just recognize the fact that this is this is the environment that we have, that there are strategies that we can employ that make us successful. And that, you know, the, the gender bias we can attack in different ways. Um, in this particular instance, it's a detractor. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight for it. It doesn't mean that it's not unfair, but in this moment, this is the strategy we adopt to get what we want and we fight that battle on a different battlefield. Exactly, hundred percent. Totally agree. You you said it perfectly, 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 perfectly. So yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a learning process for me, right? And the team that I work with, I'm still hoping to grow even more and become a better leader, a better female leader. Mm -hmm in every way possible. But um, yes, you are having to justify yourself more and present the data and be very clear uh, with your message as well. Yeah, that's very, very, very true. Absolutely. And I think one thing that we underestimate too, is that when we have certainty about ourselves, 
that we are also changing their concept about what being a woman leader is. You know, when we go in there and say, no, this, this is just how we are, you know, look at us, aren't we effective? You know, we sometimes do have to prove ourselves ahead of time, but the fact is we do prove it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we are shifting that needle just a little bit um, when we act true and genuine to ourselves. For one thing, it makes us a lot easier because we are true and genuine to ourselves, and we mm-hmm. don't get dis- uh, distracted by things that we can't do anything about in the moment. Um, mm-hmm. I find the more we are sure about who we are and the more we convey who we are, then we change their concept about what being a woman leader is um, based on how effective we are. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, this is sometimes a very difficult subject for me to bring up because I do see a lot of women who have the potential to be in strong positions of leadership, you know, really up there are are delivering just as much as their male counterparts but the lack of confidence and giving up their voice to someone else takes that image of us down, right? Because when this team sees, well, she can't make decisions. She's not really sure of what she's doing. And that, that, that perception perpetuates, you know, it really does perpetuate. So I think women, in leadership positions really have to have that confidence and trust in themselves and know that at that level, you are making an impact, whether seen or unseen. And you may be perpetuating a behavior or a bias that really we need to start changing for girls coming up and future female physicians and future female surgeons. Uh, because it's, um, unless we start doing that, that 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 always becomes a difficult mountain to climb for every woman who wants to get there, right? Yes. Who really wants to own that responsibility. Sometimes our female counterparts make it extremely difficult for us. Mm-hmm. We make it hard for each other. Yes. And that's the reality as well. The gender bias is there, but there is, there must be a term for this. Is there like, like an intergender bias? Like there's bias amongst women ourselves. We, we have gender bias, that subconscious gender bias to each other because you meet a female uh, surgeon, physician, whatever, in a leadership position, and you're having to strategize and make decisions she's biased towards you because you're female. Right. Have you encountered this? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I've, I've seen all walks of it too. I mean, we all know the person who, and, and you know, we're, we're all affected by what we've gone through. And some people take that as way of like, you know, this happened to me and you have to go through it too. Yeah. You know, uh, and there's other people that said, this happened to me, so it doesn't have to happen to you. You. I mean, it's just our way of adapting. And we do this unconsciously. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with people. It's just that we're products of our experiences. And I think the more that we talk about these experiences and we show people a different way, it's like Mm -hmm. you don't have to put other people down. It's like rising tide floats all boats. You know, like 
your success is my success. And we don't have these thoughts occur to us unless we share them and we show people it's possible. Yes. As you were talking about climbing the mountain, I had this sort of visualization of what I imagine this to be is like, you know, we want to reach the highest peak of the mountain. You know, we want to be there at the top with everybody else. And we oftentimes cannot get there by ourselves. There's little camps along the way. And so every time someone climbs a little bit higher and creates a base camp, that's a place where you can rest and mm-hmm. learn. And yes. then you you allow them to, to create the next base camp. I don't have to be the one to create that base camp ahead for us all to reach the top. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like there are different peaks we get to, right? Exactly. Every little, you know, 100, 200, 3,000 meters you climb takes you just to another level. Yes. And that may be your top right there, a moment to rest, yeah. right? For someone to even maybe join you along this journey yes. to get to the next level. Yeah. And that person may take the baton from you and then take it all the way to the top. And this could be, you know, this could be years later, generations later, who knows? But I think through this conversation, I would love to be able to join forums and discussions like your platform um, where women in leadership positions don't have or or are well aware of the possible subconscious gender bias we have amongst each other Mm -hmm. and breaking the boundaries to that. Because I think if we could start there amongst each other, it would be much easier to then take it, you know, beyond our own gender. But there is so much uh, gender bias, subconscious gender bias between women, right? I really agree. And the more isolated we become, and I think this is why it, you see this a lot more after residency. And some people see this within residency or their training, depending on where they trained. I was very fortunate to be in a training environment where we were, I was in the DC area. We had our association women surgeons, you know, a large group with, you know, really inspiring mentors that offered me thoughts all the time about how I was worthy as I was and how that we all had a responsibility to raise everybody up. And it was without drama or, you know, any other, I just felt a very supported environment. And then when I left there, you know, had I not been fortunate to be there immediately after training, in training and after training, I stayed at the same place for a while. Um, had I gone to my first job, I would not have had the foundation to support myself to this. I probably would potentially uh, or had the potential to create some of these maladaptive behaviors just to survive, you know, but I luckily had a strong foundation. And so I think that the more we offer each other, these thoughts that build this foundation, you know, we keep building these camps to where I built this camp and bring you along. And then you're now strong enough to build the next camp and you bring me along. And, you know, and before you know it, like we have created um, a stronger together um, uh, scenario to where we don't have to do all the work because it's exhausting to do all the work. It it is. And the work is, the work, right? It's not only creating it, participating it, participating in it, seeing it grow, rise through the challenges, defending yourself. You know, it, it, it's 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 a lot of work. It's a lot, and it yes, it can become exhausting. And and the, I really love this platform that you have. I I think you know I listen to a lot of the podcast. I learn so much from different women's experiences. I I. 
I, I think everyone should get a coach and a therapist. Really, I think that everybody, really, I think everybody should get a great coach or a great mastermind, you know, coaching club or something like that. And the therapist, because there's so much that we have to work through internally on ourselves and then what we exude externally and then how we work as a team and then how we work as a community in a society. And I think to be the best version of yourself, you need sisters and brothers who can help you along the way. And for me, that's what coaching has helped with, you know, and I I will forever be a huge fan of coaching because I've noticed it's helped not only in my professional life, um, but it's helped me be a better wife. I think hopefully he'll say that, but also (laughs) becoming a, a great mom. Yes. Yeah. I can tell you, you know, having been a coach for three years and my own experience with it is that the difference between coaching and advice is, you know, advice is people tell you what to do. Mentors tell you what they have done. Mm-hmm. Um, and coaches and therapists too, ask you questions. They help show you your thoughts and it goes back to this great book um, by Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey called What Happened to You? Mm-hmm. And the basic premise of that book is not to say what's wrong with you, because we tell ourselves there's something wrong with us all the time. There's something wrong with me and them and the society. And really what it is, is asking what happened to you and asking yourself, what are the thoughts that come up about yourself? What are the thoughts that come up about you know your job experience and things like that? And we take these thoughts and we could look at them and say, do I want to keep this? <laughs> I mean, is this, and we start to, to uncover who we are as people and how we fit into the world and recognizing just the tremendous amount of choice that we have in who we are as people and how we interact with the world. And we don't know this because we're not really taught to be reflective yes. and to understand our thoughts and emotions, because it's really like, well, this happened. So I do this. Mm-hmm. And that's how we've been taught that the world works. Something happens and we do something and that's how it happens. But we don't recognize the motivations and the emotions behind that. And that's what I found has been helpful about coaching. Amazing. Yes. I, I, I feel the same way. I feel the same way. I'm very, I'm very, I feel very blessed to have found some amazing coaches and know that the world of coaching is expanding and growing and you can find your niche in every, you know, the, the, the niche that you need, that the help that you need um, is, is available more so now than it was maybe 20 years ago. So I'm lucky to be in medicine now. And I feel lucky to be a woman in medicine now. Yes. Oh, and speaking of that, you know, you started sharing, you know, what your dreams are as you say, you know, when you kind of transition from this really remarkable career that you have of a solo GI um, practitioner and, you know, co-owner of a surgery center and all the challenges that are involved here too, you already have your idea on your next career. So tell me about that. I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts. Yes. So I would, I would not like to be solo for a long time because I love having a team. So if there are any GI doctors looking to move to Houston, Texas, please message me. We are certainly hiring docs, um, expanding. We'd love to expand our practice because we feel like we are delivering excellent standard of the art, you know, state of the art care in our community. And we love the community we are in, which is Katie, West Houston, Texas. But I would certainly like to live 
my life a little bit differently long-term. A long-term is kind of short-term. A lot of people are like, what? You're thinking of getting out of medicine that soon? But I think I will forever be a doctor, right? I'm going to forever be a physician, a healer, an educator. I love teaching my patients. I love being taught by my patients. So a learner as well. But when I close my eyes and think of my life, God willing, I have the health, good health, and I'm able to live a little longer. I'd like to move back home and give back to my country uh, in Ghana. And I'm thinking of several acres of land. Um, we have our own gardens where we're planting healthy fruits and vegetables. Uh, we're cooking right out of there. So I'm thinking of like a resort, a wellness I wouldn't call it resort. I just say like a wellness center where people come and spend three days, 10 days as a refuge, as a way to find peace, as a way to take a break from life. And at the center, we will be able to assess your overall health. And when we talk about health, we talk about mind, body, and spirit. So I'd love to work with yoga instructors. I'd love to have acupuncturists there. I'd love to have nutritionists and chefs who are cooking right out of our soil, organic, clean foods. Uh, we will be meditating together. We will be practicing some traditional African healing methods there. I would love to develop my own clean supplement line with herbs from Africa really push traditional herbal medicine from the African continents because we have so much richness that we need to share. You know, we shouldn't be exporting supplements from outside. We should be having our own supplements because we have everything right there. You know, everything grows on our tropical soil. And it's just a place, you know, individuals can come to, couples can come to, families can come to, corporations, teams can come to, to rest, restore mind, body, and soul. And I'll just be floating in my white, <laughs> white dress <laughs> with gray hair, you know, talking about wellness, leading yoga retreats and meditation. And I'll live right there in the resort which will probably be about two hours from our capital of Accra, out close to the water by the ocean. And that is my vision. That's my why. That's amazing. I really do, I mean, hope you develop and, and make this happen. And if anyone could do I it, hope. I have no doubt that you are one of those people. And that I hope you come that. to visit. Please, I'm first in line. <laughs> I think that this is really going to help a lot of people. So Dr. Vivian Asamo, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Thank you very, very much for having me on, Dr. Vertries. It has been a pleasure and very insightful conversation for me personally, too. For more information on the BOSS Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.